Vicky, Lermontov's coming. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new edition of In Conversation With. Uh, today, I am back with uh, Pamela Hutchinson. Hello, Pam. Hello. Uh, Pam is the writer of a BFI classic on Pandora's Box. Uh, she runs the uh, very influential silent cinema website. And I wanted to speak to her today because she's coming to the Midlands uh, on the 16th of December uh, to talk about the red shoes. Uh, and she's written another BFI classic on the red shoes, uh, which I absolutely love. I think it's a, it's a terrific book. Uh, many congratulations, really. Um, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so, so, so basically I, I wanted to talk to you in a way that didn't impede or overlap with whatever uh, it is that you're going to talk about uh, at the Midlands Art Centre. I really kind of wanted to do this just because I want everyone to know about your book, really, uh, but also to publicize this event at, at the MAC. So um, how, how did you decide to do you know, your next book, which is a very beautiful book, by the way. It's, it's a handsome volume to hold. The color illustrations are, are really beautiful. Uh, so how did you come to decide that this was going to be your next book? Well, I think I would never have really dreamt that someone would ask me to write about The Red Shoes at length. It's obviously one of my favorite films. This does not mark me out among the general population of the universe in saying that The Red Shoes is one of my favorite films. I have written about it. I have mentioned that. I have voted for it in the greatest films of all time poll. Uh, actually, the, the people from the BFI film classics, they came to me. Uh, I wrote, as you say, I wrote another one, so hopefully, I assume they didn't completely hate that. Uh, they came to me and they said, because of the anniversary that was coming up, which is uh, just this past month, uh, the 75th anniversary of the Red Shoes, and this huge BFI Powell and Pressburger season, which I'm sure you have noticed is taking up quite a lot of <laughs> bandwidth across the nation, uh, th that they would like to have a volume on the Red Shoes uh, in the BFI Film Classics season, and would I be interested? And it was a very kind of Vicky Page moment in a way in that I thought, what could be better? What could be more wonderful than this? But also how incredibly daunting. I'm sure I'll ruin it. So it was very scary. But, um, you know, went away. I mean, I did something. I thought, what would Jose do? I, <laughs> I, I put the film on the big screen at home and I mixed myself a martini and I just gave myself up to it and realised I had to do this and started working out how how you would write about the red shoes in this relatively short form format, how you would try not to repeat the same steps as everyone else. So uh, yeah, the, the book proposal took up quite a lot of my time, um, just to sort of say, what am I actually going to do? Doing it was the fun part. Mm. It's beautifully written. I'm, I'm actually going to, uh, and it's beautifully narrated, actually, which is, I find incredibly rare because, you know, I, I mean, I love this BFI series. And obviously, you know, there's better and worse ones. Um, but what I love about the way that you've written is, is that you really narrate it. Yeah. You're saying kind of, you know, let's look at this. You might not agree with me about this. Yeah. Kind of let's think a little bit about the south of France or whatever. Uh, it's 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 really lovely to be guided through, you know, what is at once a, a, a personal account of your love for it but also so beautifully contextualized that it's actually very difficult 
to disagree with you. And also I love that. I love that yeah. so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean it I mean it sincerely. Um, so so I, I, I suppose uh, I'm going to take you through some things that you've probably done a million times because even though you know we know that there's a massive Powell and Pressburger season happening all over the country, there are still probably people that don't know who Powell and Pressburger are. So let's begin with them. Who who are they and what is their significance? to British cinema, to cinema in general, really, and to British cinema in particular? So, when you, I mean, let's start with significance in a way. If we're talking about big-name British filmmakers, Powell and Pressburg are right up there. They're there up there with our, our Hitchcocks and so forth, and, and yet they made uh, their films in Britain. So mm. we're very, very proud of them. The story of them is, is, is slightly messy. They are Michael Powell, who was born in Kent, uh, English man, and... Emmerich Pressburger, a Hungarian screenwriter who actually uh, started out working in Berlin and then had to leave there because uh, because he was Jewish, basically, and then went to Paris and then eventually came here. So we have these two people who came from completely different parts of the world, uh, different parts of Europe, I should say, different film industries, different backgrounds, who the creative tension between them developed into something really strange and fantastical. So the films they make bring out this strain of British cinema, which does lean towards the fantastical, does lean towards the spiritual and the very aesthetic, which, you know, the official story of Fowl and Pressburger is that that wasn't always fashionable. Mm. So they have this quality of being our great British filmmakers and being quite distinct within British cinema. Uh, it's pretty impossible to mistake a Powell and Pressburger film for anyone else's. Mm. And I think that's why they, they stir up so much passion. There was a long time during which they were unfashionable and now I don't think you could call them anything other than revered filmmakers mm. in, this, in this film culture. Mm. Why do you think they were unfashionable? You know, to start saying this, you start doing lots of sweeping generalisations, but those are the generalisations by which we understand history, I guess. So mm. if you're talking about film culture in the 1930s, when they were both first working in this country and in the 40s as well, there's this tendency towards the real, the realist, and the idea that documentary is perhaps the most serious form of cinema, particularly for British cinema, let alone that, but there was a war on, which obviously mm. coloured everyone's um, expectations of how essential art and fantasy was. So I think that um, what they did was always slightly pushing against certain people's expectations of what should be right and proper. The films they made were often very lavish in their, their aesthetic, but also very dark. There's a lot of violence and Red Shoes is certainly no exception to that. And the critics would just constantly, the British critics would constantly say, well, you know, I like this part of the film, but we really don't like this. And they kept leaning into that dark side, mm. especially with the Red Shoes. Mm. It's, I think, what do you think that the Pressburger brings to it? Because I mean, I, I've often wondered if that's also not part of the distinctiveness of these films, that on the one hand, they're absolutely British. On the other hand, they're unlike other, yeah, uh, they, they have a different, not only aesthetic, but also a slightly kind of different way of looking at things. And I was wondering to what extent Pressburger's experience in the 30s and the various places he emigrated and maybe the notion that kind of Britain might only be a temporary shelter, you know, who knew then what we know now, uh, you know, whether, how, 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 whether that brought anything to this distinctiveness. 
Absolutely. I mean, one of the great things about a Powell and Pressburger film is that at the very least, you can always see what's the film that Michael Powell is thinking he's making? What's the film that Emmerich Pressburger is thinking he's making? And they're complementary, but they're not the same thing. So one of the things that Michael Powell found very exciting and sexy and romantic and cool when he was a young man in the south of France was being with this Hollywood film crew, all these people from all over the world coming together to make films in this beautiful part of the south of France. Mm. Emmerich Pressburger's um, equivalent experience of working with international people collaborating on art is, is this idea of going to Berlin and then it immediately becoming threatening, having to go to Paris. And, you know, even when he was in Britain, he was considered an enemy alien. So, you know, his idea is not this is an uncomplicated meeting of intellectual genius, but, you know, there's an element of refugee and exile experience here. Um, and also, just to be completely obvious... It's a Hungarian story. The story of the Red Shoes, probably I think I'm right in saying, I only just really thought just thought about this the other day, I think it has the longest gestation of any of the classic Powell and Pressburger films because it started at the beginning of the 30s without them and Alexander Korda bought the rights to Romola Nijinsky's biography of her husband. So it's it's about the Diaghilev-Nijinsky um, dynamic, love story, you know, c creative collaboration in its first iteration, and it keeps changing and changing by the time it gets to 1948. But at the end, the heart of the story is this this Hungarian woman's story about her husband's previous love affair. Mm. Uh, you describe that very, very well in, in, in the book. Um, I, I, one of the things that struck me about the book was this, I think it's uh, Powell, you quote, saying, you know, in the 1946 or 47 the period just immediately leading up to the filming uh, uh of the red shoes where he says well you know for for the last 10 years kind of uh, you know the culture has been telling us to go and die for our country right and now we're making a film that is kind of go and die for art right <laughs> which is you know kind of what the red shoes is about isn't it so kind of you know, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, it's a great quote. Yes, for the last 10 years, we've been told to go out and die for this and that. And we told people to go out and die for art. And he mm. identifies that quite clearly and I think quite perceptively as something that troubled a lot of people. A lot of people still in 1948, rationing, po dealing with the fallout of the war, didn't maybe think that art was still at the top of their agenda. A lot of people did, of course. One of the things I think that's really wonderful about that quote is that for Michael Powell, filmmaking was a religion. And he, you know, in many ways, you know, Thelma Schumacher always says, you know, he did die for his art. He was completely destroyed when he made Peeping Tom and Everyone Hated It, for example. So that's as close as you can get to dying as an artist, to sort of have everyone turn their back on you and say you can't make anything else. He thinks of himself in that position. Actually, um, Emmerich Pressburger probably felt quite similarly. Uh, Moira Shearer. Leonid Massin, probably mm. Anton Walbrook, you know, mm. and, and definitely Nanette de Valois, the, who ran Sadler's Wells, who Michael Powell butted heads with over Morishira. All these people felt that they were one of the few people who understood that art was worth dying for. Mm. And so the egotism of the artist is wrapped up not just in this statement about the supreme importance of art but how everyone feels that perhaps only they quite understand it you know this, this entire film it, it takes place mostly within Vicky Page's brain right mm. it's a very personal interior film mm. you have a wonderful quote in in the book from Linda Ruth Williams saying 
the color in the film punctuates the story like a wound. And obviously, the red shoes, and you talk in the book a great deal about what, um, what dancers do with their shoes, how they break them in, and, you know, yeah, how they blood them. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about the intersection of those things? Obviously, the film is called The Red Shoes. The red shoes are an important kind of symbol in the film, right? Uh, the, the, the dancing, the focusing on the shoes, but also that they're red and that it's a wound and that it's pain and so on. So much pain. First, I'd like to say one of the reasons that I quote that wonderful quote from Linda Ruth Williams is that she's just one of many people who've written beautiful essays before me on this film. And I really wanted to make sure that I got a flavour of what has been uh, has been written about the, the, the film before and you know when I see a phrase like that I think I'm not going to better that I'm going to give this one to, to Linda um yeah so there's something so alluring about the idea of the red shoes like uh, many a little girl or little boy I as a child was given the choice between a pair of black shoes and a pair of red shoes and I swore to my mother that the red shoes were more comfortable obviously I did you know we're much better we're going to protect my feet you know there's something very alluring about them so we have this image uh, from the fairy tale of something that is the ultimate sort of uh, fetishistic fashion item the eye-catching red shoes if only to please my friends I have gone out and bought a pair of uh, red high-heeled shoes to do all my film introductions I will almost certainly be wearing them in the Midlands. I can't think of a better place <laughs> to be doing that. Um, and yet, of course, red immediately thinks it makes us think of all kinds of deep and vicious things. In this film, it generally is, as you say, the wound. It, it's about the violence. It's about the, the breaking of yourself and the breaking of your future, about the, the pains, the sort of coming-of-age pains that you go through in order to become the artist that you want to be. It is the foreshadowing of the violent end of the film. And it has these sort of slightly religious connotations and slightly sexual connotations, and you can't see the red in this film without thinking of... Kathleen Byron's red lipstick and red dress and even red shoes in Black Narcissus, which came just so beforehand, and were the ultimate statement of her saying, you know, I'm going to transgress against all the rules that I have set for myself, that everyone else has set for me. I'm going to be my own liberated sexual woman, despite the fact that this might make me seem unhinged and actually become the ultimate monster. And that's exactly what Vicky Page does at the end. She, she chooses to dance and to defy all the sort of conventions and rules that have been set down for her that she should be either a sort of biddable employee or particularly a, a loyal wife mm, that's such an incredible moment uh, uh that you're describing in black narcissus uh because it's like the color does all the work um and i want you to talk to me a little bit more about the color because yeah uh, natalie kalmus is credited yeah for the technicolor consultation as she is in all of the uh, Hollywood films of this period that use Technicolor, and yet arguably this has a very distinctive use of color. It's not like, you know, the Technicolor that we see in 20th Century Fox films, and it's not the color that we see even in MGM films. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the design and the filming and how did, you know, how did they, they achieve this particular look in, in the film? 
the film looks so distinctive because it's not inspired by the rules of Technicolor. It's inspired by art. It's inspired by uh, Jack Cardiff, the cinematographer's grounding in classical art. And it's inspired in particular and not just inspired, entirely based on the beautiful designs of the surrealist painter Hein Heckroth, who was commissioned, uh, eventually commissioned to design the entire film and not least the ballet sequence, which is an opportunity to make film based on music, based on painting, which is to say that Hein Heckroth painted designs, uh, Brian Easdale composed the music, and the live action follows both of those things. Mm. So the colours in the film allow things like the red the red shoe symbol to pop, which is a great technicolour moment to sort of say there's always got to be one strong red colour there to, to give people the kind of grounding and the idea of the palette. But there are these murky, difficult colours. You know, when she's in the ballet sequence, you'll see all these grotesque, sort of vivid primary colours for the carnival, and then you'll go into the murky browns and greys of the streetwalker scene and the zombie scene, and, and then we get to the nature, the mountains, and, and it all suddenly becomes like the edge of the world is being restaged on uh, the stage of the, of the Monte Carlo Opera House. And it doesn't just happen like that, as I'm sure most people understand, you know, Hein Heckhoff painted things one way, Jack Cardiff then tried to film that and capture that in Technicolor. They had to invent much more powerful lights than had ever been used at the studio before to do that. And then of course that distorts the color. So then the backgrounds have to be changed a little bit so that they really look like Technicolor, or really look like uh, what Hein Heckhoff wants them to be. You know, there's that, there's a distinction. I think there is a, an acceptance now that if we see a film captured in colour, the idea is that colour is reflecting the colours of the natural world, which is obviously not entirely true. But with Technicolor in the 1940s, you really are rebuilding things in one distorted palette to make them look a different way on screen mm. in the same way that the, you know, the red shoes are kind of like a dark colour um, so that they look bright and, and light primary red on screen. I think they tried 17 different colours for those shoes. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, there's a process of going back and forth and refining every shade. And the film has the most sumptuous colour palette in the end. It's beautiful blues and greens and yellows um, when mm. we're in the south of France. So we um, we end up with something that is almost too much colour. It's almost a bit too mm. too much. It's like those um the earth sequences in a matter of life and death. Mm. I think we as an audience have maybe lost the um just you know the 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 sensibility to the power of of colour that was very uh current or dominant in the nineteen forties. I remember my colleague talking about the bandwagon. <sighs> You know, and that uh, uh, the Sitcherie's number with the sun, you know, he says that he saw it as a child and he'd never forgotten. Just the intensity of the yellow made such an imprint on him because, you know, it was like post-war Britain and kind of, you know, most films were still in black and white. And just seeing color with that intensity is something that marked him all his life. And you can imagine that part of the power of this film really is, is, is the color, right? Yeah, um, and it's sort of, you're aware that colour is, is an experience that you're having and that Technicolour is a special effect and that not all films are in colour. And I think mm. that's one of the reasons that the critics were so uh, horrified by the ending because it's one thing to show 
a ballerina or a stage or the south of France in Technicolor, but to show someone's horribly mangled, injured legs in Technicolor, mm. it's just tasteless. It's like when um, yeah. Gaspar Noé made that film in 3D that had the very explicit sex scene. People said, well, you can't, no. 3D <laughs> is for aliens and maybe the occasional murder weapon, but it's not for the phallus. No, that's, mm. that's too much. That's exactly how they felt about using actual Technicolor to show injury detail. It's just, it's just not appropriate. It's too tacky. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry that I brought the conversation to, back to the gutter again. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, uh, indeed, kind of, I want to go back to the gutter. But for now, one of the things that I found so interesting was your discussion of, you know, how the Powell and Pressburger films, what, one of the, one of the reasons why they're so celebrated is because they were composed, right? Yeah, kind of a composed film. And then you talk about the idea of the Gesamtkunst work, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing correctly. Much more fun if you don't pronounce it correctly, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, which I first came across uh, when I was reading up on Lubitsch, you know, mm -hmm. because Lubitsch had worked for Max Reinhardt, the great theatre director of his day, and one of the things that uh, 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 Reinhardt insisted on was this idea of the Gesundheit's work, that, you know, every, the color of a dress and the light and a sound effect and, you know, kind of all had to be woven into an actor's performance because everything signified together, mm -hmm. yeah? Uh, so I just kind of, you know, wanted, well, you know, I wanted you to tell me more about the, the composed film as per Powell and Pressburger, and also kind of, is that an equivalent of the Gesamtkunstwerk? Gesamtkunstwerk. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't got it written in front of me, so I've probably done that wrong too. Um, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned Max Reinhardt and, and Lubitsch, because quite often when people talk about the Gesamtkunstwerk, they go straight to Wagner, and I'm like, well, actually, yes. lots of people were seeing the world this way and seeing art this way, and Diaghilev was very much the person who said we're going to have the best costumes and the best set designs and the best music and the best dancers and this is going to be a total artwork and this is what we're going to do. And, you know, Leonid Massine, who's in the film, writes really beautifully about being shunted off to museums by Diaghilev to learn about this mm. thing. So, you know, it, lots of artists have felt this way and I think that Paul and Pressburger really were quite taken with that idea. Pressburger in particular said, you know, if you're going to make a film about art, there has to be real art in it. There has to be mm. an actual work of art. Not like, and I love this film, but you know when you watch Pandora and the Flying Dutchman and, and the mm. painting just isn't the greatest painting you've ever seen. Um, yeah. it, it can't be that. It has to be Moira Shearer at the top of her game with Robert Heltman's choreography. So, so there is this, um, so there's that idea as well. But when you go all the way to the composed cinema, the composed film, which is Michael Powell's sort of pet project that he's begun on Black Narcissus with the final operatic ending sequence of Black Narcissus, which is so effective. And this is how they film the ballet. My, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was completely tyrannous. You know, um, Michael Powell is an artist, was an artist, um, and, and he wants to have complete control on set. And we can completely identify with that and find that quite beautiful. But that meant that you have people like Maura Shearer and Robert Heltman who are just, you know, hitting their marks. And this terrifying line that resounds through the film, nothing matters but the music, which is used to sort of bully Vicky Page into submission. I thought, this is this is what it is. This is why George Romero watched Tales of Hoffman and decided to make zombie movies, you know. It's quite a terrifying idea. There's something about seeing 
act as uh, almost an automata uh, in this way it works beautifully but it's also quite quite scary like i mm. i find there's something a bit chilling about the practice of it and the effect of it on screen i think that is why for me and yes i do think for many other people for example the tales of hoffman is quite an enervating watch even mm. as it's tickling all of our pleasure centers at once with the music and the color because there's something there's something dead there dead perfect you might say but dead mm. um this is a ballet film, yeah? It is. It's a film about a ballerina, and it's about ballet. And I think you, you, you go to great trouble to establish the role of ballet in British culture, yeah? That it was a, a relatively newish thing still, but, but very popular in, I suppose, a, a kind of high art way i mean it wasn't you know it wasn't like pantomime or anything but it was increasingly popular throughout the country nonetheless it is a kind of a, an elite form so part of the film's radicalness i think is you know to make a ballet film a film about a ballerina in which the ballet is absolutely central kind of done especially for the film you know and which the idea of art and dying for art and and so on is is, is, is communicated through this particular form, which in a way is in contrast to the vehicle, which is cinema, which, you know, was maybe a, certainly a peak of popularity in this immediate post-war period. So can you talk to me a little bit about both, both, you know, ballet as context for the film, right, but also kind of you know, the meaning of low art and high art, I would say, that the, the, the film embodies, you know. Well, so there's a lot, there's a lot there. I mean, yes, yeah, no, 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 but it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about these weird contrasts and contradictions. So, for example, a British film distributed in 1948 is mass communication, is, is very accessible to all. Any, you know, anybody could go and see the film, you know, the success it had in America, you know, they, the marketing there wasn't, have you seen the red shoes? It was how many times have you seen the red shoes? So yeah, cin cinema is very popular, the most popular and incredibly accessible. You can't say the same about ballet, except people in the ballet world in Britain in the 1940s might have said, well, no, we're very accessible and we're mm. everywhere. They'd been touring throughout mm. the war, playing at, you know, not classy venues playing you know playing at a factory though you know army camps and things like that it was not glamorous to be in ballet in the 1940s and they probably thought they were about as accessible and popular as they were ever going to be so you have these two forms one which knows it's high art and thinks it's actually being quite accessible even though it isn't one that's incredibly accessible which is aiming for high art which is the Powell and Pressburger film so there's it always this really awkward friction between those two things Anyone on the Sadler's Wells size, Nanette de Valois and all her friends thought lowly of the cinema because it wasn't high art like ballet. And actually, most depictions of ballet in the cinema up to that point had been, in British cinema, had been of it being of low art, this idea that there are pretty girls, pretty working class girls, prancing around on the musical stage in tutus and rich young men go to have a gawp at them and they, they might ma manage to marry up, you know then everything that 
the Red Shoes takes from real ballet culture, the examples it takes from everything from Nijinsky to Diana Gould to, to Anna Pavlova, everything is all jumbled up and it's all from the wrong time period, which, you know, doesn't matter to you and me. It's a story. But if you're, if you work in ballet at the time, you look at this and you think, what is this strange Russianist 1920s conception of what ballet is? We're like working troopers going from boarding house to boarding house. You know, we're trying to make the art form more accessible. We're not standing around in bejeweled dresses gowns shouting at people and and yes everybody can have their real name and of course we let people get married they don't but you know they like to think they do so there's it's all about these weird self-perceptions of the two art forms I mean Michael Powell wouldn't have it said that what he did was less impressive than ballet not once Mm. not once yeah it's a wonderful meeting point because of course you know when you think of ballet on the one hand you think of I don't know imperial Russia or something but on the other hand, you think of modernism, right? Like kind of modernism, you know, was meant to be announced by the rites of spring, you know, and the coming together of all of these incredible artists in that production, right? And, and here you have, again, you know, a popular art, a popular film, The Red Shoes, but again, kind of pushing all these boundaries and announcing itself as something kind of, you know, new and, and modern, yeah, and unusual that somehow you know, hits the vein of, of popularity. Was it expected? I mean, what was the success? Yeah, because you mentioned in the film that it was the number one box office film in America for that year, which is really quite incredible to think about. Mm. You know, was, was that a name of the filmmakers and was that an expectation of, of rank? Oh, it was not an expectation of rank. It was an expectation of Powell and Pressburger. They thought they'd just made this wonderful film with um, Black Narcissus and that they would be allowed to do whatever they wanted. They got lots of pushback while they were making the film because they wanted to have Moira Shearer or a, a ballerina in the lead role. And they also wanted to spend lots of money on the film. And the executive said, basically, if you have Anne Todd or Olivia Havilland, you can have money. But without a star, you can't have money. And they just kept overspending. And when the executives saw the film, they thought it had no hope. They, they thought it was dead. There was no chance. So they didn't give it a premiere. And and it's shocking now because, I mean, if you were to think about British cinema heritage, what one image could you possibly get everyone to rally around to sit showing something great about British cinema culture? It would, it would probably be a still from the Red Shoes, would be at the very top of your list. And it was not expected to do well. And the critics were really impressed by the art of it but were so caught up with all these ideas about whether it was really like ballet and whether the ending was acceptable, you know. And so almost at the same time as they're talking about how this is this great work of art, they're they're jumping over that and saying, well, yes, but that's not important. That's not what we're interested in. We need to know about whether this is really a, a great depiction of ballet culture. And a few of the critics really get get there somehow, but they are caught up with these other questions. If... Rank had thought that it would uh, it would do better. It would have had a completely different story in, in, in Britain. But, I mean, it has been enduringly popular. I wonder if it had been so acclaimed, it would have changed some things that happened later for Powell and Pressburger. I don't know if this is quite the case, but Tales of Hoppen did get a premiere, the kind of gala premiere, and I wonder if that's because people said, well, they did it with the red shoes. Maybe we don't see it, but it works. And, of course, then you were in the position of having a film that's had all this hoo-ha that isn't 
taken to heart by the nation mm. in the same way. And there's so many ways that um, Powell and Pressburger sort of fell out of favour, and that would be, you know, and you can see all these odd little missteps happening for them. No one, yeah, no one on the sort of executive side, the studio side, really shared Mickey's vision, as they called it. Mm. They thought he was being, a, he thought, thought he was being megalomaniac, and that they would, in the correspondence, they'll talk about what a great filmmaker he is, and also talk about the fact that he's being extravagant and you know he's completely wrong and must be reined in so there's no respect for the vision at all it's it's the most beautiful film i mean you know you can stop it anywhere and it's just ravishing i mean i think there's no other word for it really the compositions the color the angles it's just it's just amazing uh and and it's an interesting film in the sense that it's both you know a really popular film like kind of you know people watch it and love it and it's also a really cinephile film in the sense that it does things cinematically that you have to be you know I was going to, a genius like somebody really superbly skilled in what cinema can do to achieve yeah which is also kind of unusual yeah that those things kind of go together uh, so you know many many reasons uh, to to go and see the film but before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about the actors, right? So you have a wonderful uh, phrase on, on Anton uh, Wahlberg where you say, he has a way of elongating or truncating his syllables, meticulously modulating the tempo of his words, uh, a self-conscious form of verbal dance, which I think, you know, kind of, once you, once you read that phrase, you recognize it. So it's a kind of a lovely insight. But tell me more about Wahlberg, because I think maybe of of the actors in The Red Shoes, he's possibly the only one that continues to have uh, a dedicated and intense following. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the cast, but maybe begin with, with, with Wahlberg? Well, I suppose I, I think I have to apologise to one of our friends um, who said to me when we were when I was working on this book, she said, well, you know, working on the Red Shoes, it's not just a process of falling in love with Boris Lermontov again and again and again. That's Wahlberg's character. And I was like, oh, no, no, you don't fall in love with him. And I think that's because I was so far into it. I was trying to reject my growing passion for Boris Lermontov, which hasn't really left me since I watched the film as a little girl. Um, Boris Lermontov is an incredibly compelling character. He is the seducer, maybe the devil seducer in this film, but he is definitely the seducer. He's very attractive and he's very cruel and tyrannous. Um, and Anton Warbrook embodies this character beautifully who has a complete ambivalence. Every, everybody does what Boris Lermontov tells him to do. He has supreme power. He's acclaimed as this great man. And yet he is surrounded by the person who can compose the person who can conduct, the person who can paint, the person who can write choreography, the real dancers, the real musicians. He is the sort of, he's the man almost without the talent at the middle of it. He just has the vision. He just has enough artistic energy to drive F1 through. And Anton Warbrook, a great star in Germany, a matinee idol who had to reinvent himself in a rather bruising way when he came to England. He came to England because of his Jewish heritage, because he was gay, you know, for all the obvious reasons. He, he fled the Nazi re regime. Um, he gives us this character who's both has supreme power and also is very vulnerable, who, who won't be anything unless Vicky will dance for him. And 
I was mesmerised by Anton Warbrook's performance and actually I spent so long watching The Red Shoes and thinking about The Red Shoes. I got a shock when I watched him in anything else. Have a quick watch of Blimp. He's wonderful in that film, but he's he's nothing like as intense. Uh, or, you know, La Ronde or any of these, these films. Even with perhaps the exception of Queen of Spades and, and Gaslight, the Thorold Dickinson films. So, you know, he's doing this very intense, almost unbearable to watch performance. And that's why I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't suggesting, oh, there comes Anton Ulbrich with his uh, complicated backstory and his very strong accent playing Boris Lermontov. He's putting so much into this role. And he was so passionate on set. I mean, you know, when Michael Powell started acting like Lermontov on set and was very cruel to one of the other actors, Anton Ulbrich decided he was never going to work for Michael Powell again. He stormed off set. You know, the tempers ran high. When you see... And Tom Walbrook deliver that final speech in front of the red curtains at the end of the film. You know, there's so much emotion. Sometimes I think I can't watch that scene again, you know, and he sort of seems to die in the box afterwards. So, yeah, so that's at the centre of the film is this incredibly complicated man playing this very difficult character. And everyone else sort of finds their place around it. For Moira Shearer, a young, confident, you know, perfectionist woman who's sort of been painted as a sort of petulant little girl sometimes who's in this film, you know, she was having to face up to him. And I think there's that wonderful scene when she's sitting on a chair and he's telling her he's going to make her into something great. And she sits up straight. Her back is so straight when she says she wants to dance. And she's almost trying to say, look, I can be just as tough as you. Um, And yet she is, you know, in the position of vulnerability. Marius Goring... Uh, always wanted to play the lover for Paul and Pressburger and the joke is so horribly on him I'm so sorry Marius but you know you finally got to play the lover and you're actually with the comic role all along and the reason he's the comic role is partly so you realize that you're not interested in him you're only interested in Vicky's story you know he's a secondary character because he's comic one of the most interesting things I discovered when I was looking at the original screenplays for the film is that that terrible speech he gives, that awful speech where he says that he's going to tell his young girlfriend about how wonderful it was to be in love with Vicky Page one day. That's actually Vicky Page's speech originally. Yeah. So Vicky Page was meant to be the one who said, oh, one of these days I'll tell people that I used to go out with this composer before he became an egotistical monster. So, you know, it, you have these sort of strange things. You know, Marisgorian... Marius Goring is doing a great Thomas Beecham impression, a great comic performance, and every so often people let him play the lover, but he's he, he's not he's not doing that. And I think we almost that engenders quite a lot of sympathy for his role because we know that the marriage is never going to be the most important thing for Vicky. Um, and so many of the people are just really d- doing and doing what they do. You know, Robert Heltman, who was such a great actor and dancer, there to do the choreography, to play a character, to dance, and Leonid Massine just bringing his sort of energy of decades at the top of ballet and his experience with Diaghilev right into this extreme performance. And a lot of people think that Grisha, the character player, is quite funny. You know, he he calls for the spotlight toujours c'est moi, but. Uh-huh. It, it's interesting, when Maura Shearer was asked about the film, she said, well, of course, people aren't that temperamental in the real ballet world. It's ridiculous. And Massine said, oh, no, oh, no, they're worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> so all that play acting with uh, the Russian ballerina, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Maura Shearer, because she's the heart of the film. Uh, um, the film is unimaginable without her, and she's very good. And yet she's someone who didn't really have a film or much of a film career afterwards. 
Uh, so c- can you tell me a little bit about her? She's such a fascinating character, such an intelligent woman, and someone who had all these ambitions. So she grew up in Rhodesia, and she came back to Britain, and she was doing ballet from a young age. And obviously she loved ballet, and she learned uh, her technique beautifully. She was renowned as this great beauty, which is yet another thing that she probably hated. Um, I mean, that's how Michael Powell first found her, because someone said, mm. you know, come and look at this beautiful young woman. Um, she always thought there were so many other things she could do with her life. She wanted to get into writing and acting and sports and, and, and learn and learn more. She hadn't had a full education because she'd been doing ballet. And so she was constantly frustrated by the narrowness of the path that she had. So, you know, when she she, she tries being in a film and it's quite a bruising experience because the dancing is difficult in those circumstances and because she's quite young and she's working for someone like Michael Powell. I think her first day on set is the death. You know, it's it's that kind of no consideration for what she might need as a young actress. Um, she 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 still wants to act more. She's like, well, I could get better at this. She wants to expand her life. She gets married and has children. For a while, she's trying to still be a ballerina while being married and having children, which everyone in British ballet at the time would have said that you totally could do, but they all knew it was pretty much impossible. And, and she struggled with that. And then, of course... Nobody wants to have to give up one thing or the other or feel that you failed. Uh, so, you know, to protect her family, she bowed out of ballet, but she continued to act. And, you know, she did act again for Michael Powell. And I think, you know, as much as she found it a difficult experience in The Red Shoes, just like when Vicky Page meets Bert Lermontov, you know, there's a kind of meeting of minds. Two great perfectionists could get along together. And she was much happier being in The Tales of Hoffman much happier because she could dance much better she could express herself much better her technique had improved and he gave her much more room to dance and of course uh, she was quite horrified by by many things about peeping tom uh, she i think suggested that critics were probably right to say that it was too disgusting but i bet she enjoyed dancing to her death that's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing that would have tickled her she had a very dark sense of humor i think and um and great for her to play a sort of modern woman, laughing as she goes <laughs> merrily to her end. <laughs> um, you, well, you don't end the book this way, but close to the end of the book, you talk about the film's continued influence, and uh, you mention Argento's Suspiria, which I had ne- hadn't occurred to me, but which, again, once you, once you, you say it, you see it, uh, and Aronofsky's The Black Swan, which is, you know, kind of, uh, uh, more easy to connect because it's also about ballet and so on. Um, but just a, br- a broader general question, what do you think in general is the film's continued influence? Where, all, where else can we see it aside from these two particular examples that you give? I mean, it's, it's huge. I mean, the, the, the film is run by essential motif and this brilliant use of colour, which we could obviously pick up in every other Paolo Pressburger film. So you barely need to even finish saying the words, the red shoes, and so you'll realise that, you know, Kate Bush is here and someone's written a poem and the image of it is so powerful. It's got this legacy in horror cinema because of the, the sort of grotesqueness of the, the exaggerated stage makeup, the way they really lean into that and the kind of body horror of it. But I do think that one of the things that it's... It, it, it's made its name through the through the ages is his legacy in the ballet film. 
The ballet film before the red shoes and the ballet film after the red shoes are very different. And I'm saying that quite carefully because I'm not trying to suggest that everything is due to the red shoes. There were some interesting films made in the 40s on ballet, but there is a, there is a sort of sweetness to the ballet film and a sort of simple class structure and an idea that a, a maybe a relationship story or a romantic story is more mm. important. And after the Red Shoes, you get these films about young people who really want to dance and will do anything to dance. And you have a certain amount of body horror. It's almost impossible to make a ballet film these days without close-ups of sweat and sweat mm. patches and broken toenails and bruises and, and, and bloody blisters and all those violent sequences about the shoes and what people do to the shoes. But also the idea that there's psychological turmoil at the heart of the ballerina's experience, even on stage. And of course, it's very, very difficult choice between love and art. And, you know, I'm staring directly at the turning point here. A film mm. that aesthetically looks so different to mm. the Red Shoes, but yet, I mean, the, the, everything in there could be taken from it. I mean, we have all the, the young Coreans in the chorus line referencing it as well, but, you know, I think it said something difficult and essential about what it meant to be a young person embarking on a career in art, and particularly in ballet, that hasn't ever really left us. And so we have this as part of our stories about auditions and big dreams and big breaks and everything else that's sort of a little bit easier to assimilate we have this you know i'm gonna you know i'm gonna tell you the big thing right so like moira shira used to share a dressing room with margot fontaine when they were in mm. as well of course they did and one day margot fontaine says to moira shira that all she wants to do all she dreams about is walking out into the middle of the stage and screaming and the Red Shoes is the ballerina scream. And it's always been there, but, you know, we sort of allow ourselves to hear it now. And that's what you see in all these films about art, but particularly dance. Even the ones that you think are a bit cheesy. <laughs> what, what, what it made me think of, which, you know, I'm dumb, so it hadn't occurred to me before. <laughs> You're not dumb. When you read about uh, an American in Paris, you always hear about what a struggle it was to do the ballet, how difficult... Uh, how the film was finished, and then they had to convince uh, the executives at MGM to give them more money. And then you see the red shoes, and you find out about the red shoes, and you realize that, you know, even though Manelli had done a dream ballet in Yolanda and the Thief, and that had been a big flop, the red shoes had just come out the year before, and it was the biggest hit in America, and all, you know, everyone was crazy about ballet, uh, and, you know, the film was uh, this astonishing work of style. So, uh, and the big box office success. So how much of a risk was it, you know, uh, uh, to do uh, a musical uh, that had uh, a ballet sequence in it? All those kind of triumphalist stories about an American in Paris now become kind of more questionable, at least. Well, you know, Hollywood were terrified, like, when Red Shoes came out in America, the audiences clamoured for it in the same way that they, they talked about Ginger Rogers. You know, they were like, they recognised all the pleasures of the musical. So the the Freed unit were <laughs> terrified, effectively. There's a larger world of the Freed unit. Uh, they realised that these two Brits had made a film that had outdone what they'd always been trying to do with their dream ballets, etc. So Gene Kelly does try and persuade the executives 
to give him his dream ballet, his extended dream ballet, by showing them the red shoes again and again. But they're really conscious of it. I found all these stories where, you know, people came out of premieres and assured each other that they'd done better than Powell and Pressburger. I mean, Hollywood hates to be outdone by the, the European continent. And if they can't buy it, uh, they just have to keep outdoing it and outdoing it. So, you know, there was a really, there was a real niggle there. <laughs> Well, congratulations once again uh, on a terrific uh, book, Pam. I love reading it. It's an incredibly handsome volume uh, full of just gorgeous reproductions uh, from the film uh, with uh, superb analysis and just, you know, that, that, that beautiful writing, that beautiful mode of narrating that makes reading it uh, a joy. Uh, so many congratulations. We look forward to welcoming you here. Uh, on the 16th of December at the Midlands Art Centre uh, to uh, introduce the film uh, and, and, and talk, talk to us some more uh, about it. Uh, the book is a perfect uh, stocking filler. <gasps> Shoes in your stocking! <laughs> and the visit is one I look forward to. Thank you very much, Pat. Thank you for having me.